Hi guys, and welcome to this episode of How to Wow, starring the effervescent and infinitely irrepressible force for good that is June Sarpong. And this super special episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife, and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity, and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic greens.com slash don't forget how to wow okay and now cue the conversation hello june hi chris we've known each other forever but i can't remember how we know each other through wahid ali right is that where we first met yes uh, which is probably about 20 years ago so um and then obviously i came on your show a few times yeah. back in the day and you came on ours which yeah. is great um, yeah, so it's about 20 years. So we're going to talk extensively about your book in a moment or two. It's called mm. The Power of Privilege. Mm. Um, this has been out for how long now? Uh, four days. Four days. As we sit here in the second week of October. Yes. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, October the 5th. Correct. But it's been, a, if not a lifetime, it's been at least a couple of years in the making. Hasn't yeah, it? for sure. It's been about, yeah, four to two years in the making. Okay, tell us about that. So um, my previous book, Diversify, which I came on your show to talk about, which is lots of fun, uh, came out four years ago. And and so on the promo for that, I was going around the country, talking to lots of people, different communities, different groups around the country, and 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 also a lot of companies as well. And the thing that kept coming up again and again was white people coming up to me to say, what can we do? How can we be allies? Not sure what they're allowed to say and can't say, not sure what words to use, don't want to offend, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I just knew there was a need for something like this. Um, and at the time, I said to my publishers, I said, you know what we need to do? We need to do a book for white people specifically on this issue. And she wasn't convinced. And so I, I wrote it anyway, um, and, and they were like, mm. And then obviously... The, you know, the last few months and, and the, the outcry around the world over the senseless killing of George Floyd and, and everything that that's brought up in terms of Black Lives Matter. Um, and so then they were like, remember that book? I was like, uh-huh. And so anyway, so we sort of updated what I'd written already and then added everything that's happening now. So it's very current, but it's also very prescriptive. So, so why did they say no in the first place? Do you know, I think... I think it's back to, you know, you and I have spoken about this already. I think it's a, it's about the sort of discomfort there is around this issue. And I think a lot of people are so uncomfortable approaching it 
that even those that perhaps have the ability to to ignite a conversation also feel uncomfortable approaching it. So I just think they weren't sure how something like that would be received then. But obviously we're in a different place now. So it's written fully formed then. You do, yeah. The whole book is almost as it is now. And I mean, there are some updates in it. Obviously of course, there are. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was more or less all down. Yeah. Because it's interesting, isn't it? Because there have been, there are a lot of books, uh, not like, not specifically like yours, but definitely obviously covering the same subject. Mm. But this, this how-to for white people... Yeah. You know, which is is exactly what we need. Yeah. You know, there was there was demand for it. There was there should have always been demand for it. But what was what was the publishing world like around other books with a similar narrative? Because obviously you had one out at yeah. the time. You know, what? what how many? Because I should imagine. You know, since since um, the murder of George Floyd, you know, your phone probably hasn't stopped ringing. Yeah. You've been in such demand, I would imagine. Yeah, sure. um, but what was it like a couple of years ago? You know, a couple of years ago, definitely things were moving in the right direction. So obviously you had um, uh, you had my book, you had Afua Hirsch's, you had Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Um, so it was moving in the right directions, but still I think that a lot of people were still really uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people also didn't even want to acknowledge that systemic racism existed, you know, because you just feel bad, you feel guilty, and you, and you don't know what to do. Um, but... George Floyd and COVID combined, I think, I don't think we would have had the same outpouring for George Floyd's killing without COVID. The two are so linked in terms of where we are right now. Um, And I think that what that did was it meant that people couldn't turn away. You couldn't deny what you were seeing on your screen. And therefore, you couldn't but ask yourself what that meant, because deep down, we kind of all knew. Um, And so I think where we are now, um, which is what I'm very excited about, is we're at a place where people are open to having the discussion and also open to being honest about the fact that perhaps they don't know. And actually, there's nothing wrong with not knowing. Why would you know if it doesn't impact you? So be open to hearing from someone who it does impact and then let's figure out what we do to fix it. So in our lifetimes, at least, there's never been such polarisation and there's never been so much need um, for conversation, but Mm. there's never been less middle ground. So even though we're all much more willing to have conversations about anything, hopefully, because we're now being pushed to the extremity of desperation and urgency... I think we're in Eisenhower's first box now. Yes, we are. Four, yeah, in, you know, here we are. What's important? Okay, yeah. that's box two. Now mm-hmm. it's important and urgent. Now it's got to happen. We're sort of there now, aren't right, we? Yeah. So so even though the incentive's there, the material's there, the wisdom is there, the knowledge is there, the will is there, mm. but where do we get the middle ground from? How do we, how do we sort of reinstate that or recreate that? Because it's disappeared. I think we get the middle ground, Chris, from what you just described in Eisenhower's fourth box in that we are now a sort of a critical place where, particularly with what's coming economically, you know, at the moment we haven't, you know, on we're at October the 5th today, we haven't really felt the full impact of this crisis. And I think we come back January, February, we're going to be in a very different place. And that's when furloughs have stopped. That's when the businesses that will not survive will have closed. That's when we have a generation of young people, educated young people who might not get their first job. And I think we're going to be in a really different place. And this, the thing with this crisis, Chris, which is so frightening, is, as we know, often the poor are disproportionately impacted by any crisis. 
this crisis, unless you are wealthy, you are going to be impacted by middle class people who have had a comfortable living for a very long time are going to be impacted by this. And so I think we're going to be at a place where many people are in some form of distress. Therefore, we've got no choice. We're going to have to figure it out together. We literally have no choice. You know, I often reference aviation and when things start to go wrong in a plane, they go wrong very quickly. And this in the realms of human experience is quite exponential. I had a friend of mine who was doing a podcast in January 2020. And on the first, his first, his first podcast of every year, his name is Rich Roll, brilliant podcast. I love Rich Roll and Julie Piaf. I'm yeah. obsessed with them. <laughs> there you go. Two more likes, Rich. Yeah, two more likes, Rich. Not that we're doing that anymore. It's bad for you <laughs> bad for on you. every level. On every level. <laughs> Not the, good for your mental health. <laughs> the point is we love you today. Yeah. So, so now you know. So, so at the beginning, the first, po- first podcast of every year, Rich has somebody on who usually he has like a Goggins character on. Yeah. And this year he had a guy called Chad Taylor on, who's an ex-Navy SEAL, as is David Goggins. Mm. Um, of course, this was pre-COVID, right? And so, you know, Rich opens up his podcast and he says, you know, obviously we're in very challenging times now. I'm thinking, my God, you know, that's what we thought, that's what we thought. in January. Yeah. You know, just with what was going on in the yeah. world, you know, with, with, with the polarisation of people, with, with, you know, the sort of um, the breaking down of communication, but, you know under a covert headline of the fact that we're more connected than ever, but we're not really at all. Not really at all. And, you know, Rich and his guest, Chad, who's brilliant, by the way, we're having this conversation as if, like, we really need to sort this out. This is pre-COVID. And then COVID lands and you go, oh, hang on a minute. We're really in Upshits Creek now. That was January. It was near to Christmas. And right now it feels like Christmas. Okay. Now, what you have just described, sitting here on October the 5th, I feel like we might be making not the same mistake, oh. but we it might be another sort of um, another bookmark, very similar to what Rich and Chad were talking about. Yeah. You know, you've you've obviously you've you've um, you've you've lent against it by saying I think it's going to be different in February and March. I think you're right. So you're halfway down the road further than I am. Mm. But I think you know, like back back to my aviation um, analogy, I just think it, this could go like. So, this could tailspin. Wow. Don't you think so? Easily. Easily. Uh, you know, and you're talking about middle, middle class families, you know, who are fortunate enough to have rainy day money. Mm. But it's been raining for six months now. It's been raining for six months. That's going to run out, yeah. isn't it? And that's, yeah. what, that's, when, that's when things are really going to fall apart. Not because middle class families are more important than people. No, 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 no. But it's just, it's just the very fabric. It's the fabric. And the people that thought they were invincible... You know, and you know, um, and who don't have the resilience for it as well, Chris? Because don't forget, we poor families—they're used to tough times. You know, when you come from a tough background, when you're not sure where your next paycheck is coming from, you're kind of used to it. But when you've had that sort of comfort, and as you say, rainy day money, things have never really been that bad. You're not prepared, and that—that's a frightening prospect. Right, I'm a council house kid. Mm-hmm, so right? am I. I yeah. know you are, mm-hmm. and you, you talk about it in your book. Now, I didn't know we were poor. No, neither did I, actually. That's the difference, <laughs> yeah, That's the it? difference, yeah. Uh, you know, and now I look back, my mum's no longer here, God so I feel me. I can talk about this with a bit more freedom mm. now. Um, but we we probably were poor, yeah. you know, but we didn't... No. You know, and and we weren't poor in love, and we weren't poor in support, and we weren't poor in security. But financially, we were quite poor. In yeah. fact, we were very poor. Yeah. We were extremely poor. Um, and like you say, you know, there are people a lot poorer than we were, mm. we have ever been. Mm. But 
we have an idea about how how extremely fortunate. Yes. That's the joy, isn't it? I was talking That's to joy. Shirley Ballas was was mm. with us earlier on today, and ex, for extreme joy to exist within that has to be the equal amount of pain. Yes. Otherwise. You can't have that. You can't job. have that because you don't know you've got it. Yeah. This is why when I started working in radio and telly, you know, we used to go out for lunches. What are they, right? So we used to go out for lunches with other people I work with. And all the way through the lunch for like most of the 1990s, I've been like, isn't this amazing? <laughs> and people are going, well, it's all Is right. Really? It's just food, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> why don't we get all the starters on the menu? Well, why do you want all those for? Because we can, can. afford them. Yeah. Right, and then it gets to four o'clock and people start ordering taxis. Why are we going home? We can afford to stay out until next year. No, but we've got to go home. No, we don't. No, we we don't. don't have to go home. And this is and it's only now that I'm realising all this is what was happening to me. Yeah. I was like, this is amazing. amazing. Wow. It's like the cockerel in Peter Rabbit, the yeah. one that, on the gate. Ah, ah, ah. Another great day. Isn't it amazing? It's another great day. Ah, ah, ah. That's what I felt like for yeah. for no, between 1992 and about now, yeah, actually. Yeah, me too. I still feel it now because it's true. Because when you know this is not normal, you can be really grateful for it. Yeah, but even then, but then I forgot to be grateful as well. So what the heck did I learn? But, but you um, know now. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Okay. Right. Let's let's go back to there. Let's go back. You start your book off with this amazing um, um, wisdom from your mum, I think it was. And she, she said, look, the thing is, June, uh, black people, especially black women, yes. will have to work twice as hard to achieve half as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And that's the thing that, you know, every child of colour... And the other thing that I talk about is obviously now in the UK, um, mixed race children are one of the fastest growing ethnic groups in Britain, which mean you have lots of parents who themselves are not a person of colour, but their child is. And there's the thing that we call uh, in ethnic communities, which is the conversation. So for white people, the conversation with their kids is about the birds and bees. For anybody of colour, it's about the harshness that your child will have to face, doesn't matter how brilliant they are. They will experience that at some point in their lives. Chances are even when they go to nursery school. And and every parent has to have that heartbreaking conversation with their child. And so for me, and the thing is, the other thing I talk about is you never remember when you had it. You just know you had it. And whenever people of colour meet each other, it's kind of like, do you remember yours? Like, yeah, you remember yours? We've all had it. And I think that this is the one of the things that I really wanted white people to understand in that this stuff isn't overt is very covert it's the kind of thing where sometimes you think you're imagining it because it's so um, insidious in terms of how it plays out in reality and the thing is it's not a level playing field when you're in the class you will be second guessed when you go for your first job and you don't get it you will ask yourself did I not get it because of questions that if you are white particularly if you're white male you definitely don't have to ask yourself and so these are the things that play out day in and day out and so that's what I really wanted to hopefully get across is it's not overt stuff it's not the n-word it's not all the things that we focus on it's the little 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 things that drip 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 that eventually ends up with the kind of inequality we see in society and it's those drips that make up this 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 much feared 
ignorantly much feared phrase privilege, yes, isn't it? Because correct. that's the, it's the yeah. drips that make up the privilege. Yeah. And it's why people rage against the white privilege um, tag. Yeah, because, because they go, well, hang on a minute. You know, yeah. I was, I was, I didn't, I worked for everything. I've got. No, no, and no. you did. Yeah, yeah. And it's all fine, but it's the drip, drip, drip. Yeah. Now, can you reflect on that from your dad's story? Yeah, of course. So, so my dad, uh, his story is so wonderful. He came from a very, very, very poor um, village in Ghana. So my mother's family were quite wealthy. Um, my great-grandmother was an amazing woman. She uh, was a freedom fighter in Ghana. And she was also, even though she was illiterate, she was very good at business. So she became a market trader. And in Ghana, the bulk of the economy is really sort of held up by the women in the markets. Um, and so she made a lot of money um, um, in the sort of 40s and 50s um, as a market trader. So my mother came from this sort of big family in Kumasi, which is where we're from originally. And my dad came from a tiny, tiny, tiny village. Parents had nothing, but he was really clever. And so he got a scholarship to go to a really good school where all the wealthy kids went to. And then he was educated, doing very well. And like, you know, young Ghanaians, you know, it was part of the colonies. The idea was to come and sort of have a career in the UK, etc. So they came did some more education and then the idea was they were going to go back and so we all went back and the, the terrible coup happened so we ended up here and so you had this educated proud black man who had been somebody in his own country um, and came here and all he could get was security work and I think for a lot of people this is the stark reality the harsh reality and a lot of them sort of accept it Whereas my dad was very ambitious. And I think if my dad had been a white man, he would have been incredibly successful. Um, those opportunities were not available for him. He was a banker in Ghana. He was not going to go and get a sort of banking job in the city over here. That just wasn't an option for immigrants then. And so sadly, they split up. He moved to America with my brother and and living in America he was able to do well he was able to set up a construction company and he now has a a very nice lifestyle um he probably would not he definitely actually would not have been able to do that here at the same time which so, is quite sad why did he go to America particularly he went to America because even though America has all of the issues that they have around race and and let's not forget Chris theirs is way worse than ours no question because at the end of the day slavery actually happened on their shores in the in the in the difference in that ours it was elsewhere we british people always knew not to bring that home even though they were doing it in the colonies america the fact that it could happen on their shores and people be comfortable seeing it it's just something else you know what i mean and then you have the two people living side by side somehow trying to figure that out when this is how their um histories are connected their past are connected so but what America does have is that American dream, which means that what they do better than us is the opportunity piece. So even with all of the issues they have around race, still, that dream means that at any point, somebody might give you a break and that at any point the trajectory of your life could change. So that's why you have the extremes there. That's why you have the sort of Oprahs and the sort of puff daddies and so on, because 
that dream allows for the extremes in the way that we don't have that here. So it doesn't allow for the extremes. There's, there's no, there's a reason why you do not have many black people on the Sunday Times rich list or whatever here. There's a reason because we don't have that bit. That's really interesting. Mm. I know you talk about that in your book. You talk about Oprah, you talk about billionaires, you talk mm. about Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, and I'm, because you don't say that in your book, the bit you've just explained there. Mm. I, now I get that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, there's there's no more watched documentary in the history of television than um, The Last Dance to Michael Jordan. Yes, it's so good. It's so good. So good. You know, um, and... You know, whether it's Fair Tiger Woods, example. yeah, whether it's uh, Venus Williams, yeah. Yeah, whether it's Arthur Ashe back yes, in the 70s or 80s, yeah, you know, yeah. think of Muhammad Ali, yeah. you know, it's it's okay for black people to be extremely successful as long as they stay in their lane. Yeah. Would that be right yes. or not? Yeah, 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 yeah. To a degree, Chris, because even if you don't stay in your lane, mm. it's all right for extreme success because that dream, because obviously with us, Everything is seen through the prism of class. And so people kind of stay in their boxes. Whereas in America, everything is seen through the prism of race. But that American dream means that that's the thing they all have in common. They all believe in that dream. The minute they stop believing in that dream, there's trouble. But they all believe in that dream. And because they all believe in that dream, it means you will have somebody on Wall Street who's... Parents perhaps were immigrants from Poland or one of the European countries who understands firsthand what it means to literally have nothing. And so, and then they become incredibly successful. So they've got that in them. So when they see the kid from the hood, there's a connection there. They're like, okay, that boy's got the kind of hoods, but I had, I'm going to give him a chance in the way that if you look at who makes up the upper echelons of our societies, you don't have as many of those types of examples. So there's just such a disconnect. There's, if you know, if you've come from landed gentry, it's very hard for you to even imagine the story of, to think, oh wow, let me do what I need to do so that that kid can have what I've been able to do. And I think that's why you get the big extreme. So like with Oprah, her lawyer um, was the person who said to her, well rather than just being TV talent, you know, in the way that you were so smart to be a businessman too, Chris, um, that's what Oprah did. Her, her, her lawyer said to her, why, rather than just being on screen, why don't you own your own company? And she didn't think of that. It never occurred to her to think in that way. But when that lawyer sort of planted that seed, she was able to run with it. And there's a reason she is the most successful person, white, black, green or yellow, in entertainment. <laughs> Kermit the Frog did all right. Yeah, Kermit did all right. <laughs> Almost as good as her. <laughs> the, the phrase you use in the book, and I think it's what she's, I think it's a quote from Oprah, mm. is that her lawyer um, took the ceiling off her brain. Yes, totally, totally. And made her somebody that, was much more about being an owner rather than a consumer. Yeah. yeah. Have you met Oprah? Not yet. Can you believe this, Chris? So Oprah was in the UK two years ago um, and I was invited uh, to her film and then to, to do a, a meet and greet after. And I was working and it was filming and it ran over. I'm like, you are stopping me from meeting Oprah, my idol. <laughs> so this thing ran over. And so 
I then called the the, the Please tell me it wasn't the pledge. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I would have left that if it was. <laughs> so, I like the pledge, I by the way. I love the pledge. But there's always another pledge. <laughs> there's always another pledge. And there's always another person that can take over for you. So anyway, so so I feel, so I called the film company. I'm like, is it still going? And they're like, no, it's, it's finished. But there's the after party. Why don't you come to the after party? I'm thinking there's no way Oprah's going to the after party. Because, you know, they usually turn up, they do their five minutes and they leave. So I went home, went to bed, Chris. I wake up in the morning. <laughs> All my friends are sending me pictures, partying, dancing with Oprah. <laughs> she met everyone in the UK apart from me. It was a very sad day. Yeah, I was there that night. <laughs> Did you meet her too? No, I didn't go around. Just <laughs> um, have you met Michelle? Because you can't, nowadays, you can't have a, well, you can, but you, often conversations about Oprah involve Michelle Obama now. Yes, well. they do. Yes, I've met Michelle Obama a couple of times. She's uh, amazing. T- tell us about those encounters. Yes, so I did um, all of the voiceovers for um, uh, the intro for the book release over here. So she was, so I worked quite closely with the um, publishers. So when she came to uh, the UK, I met her then. And then I met her again in New York um, at the after party for her book launch event there. So I've met her twice. She's amazing. Have you had any exchanges with her? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because she's so friendly, you know. She, and so I said to her, I said, so when she heard that it was me doing the box, she was like, I should have had you do it all. She's like, I, your accent's way better than mine. I was like, no, 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 Michelle. I think people want to hear you. <laughs> I was like, I think they want to hear you rather than me. <laughs> when you're around someone, you get a sense, rightly or wrongly, depending on what they're like, of who they might be. What did you? Mm. What did you? What sense did you get about her? Do you know what I got about her, Chris? Which is there are only a few people. Um, and only a few women, because it's very hard for a woman to have that because of everything that society, how women are programmed. With her, what I got was someone who genuinely likes themselves. Like, there's no part of herself sabotaging herself. Do you know what I mean? It's a very, it's a very different energy. It's a, it's a powerful energy, but it's also a very inviting warm energy it's it's quite amazing to be around like she's just not bought into all the conditioning it's amazing so you talk about um by the way that is very rare isn't it mm, in the human very, being yeah. yeah and now you say it it's uh it's quite evident if you're around it yes wow yeah it's quite envious it's, it is <laughs> enviable. very very enviable. enviable i was like nope notepad out <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do this? You're pretty good at that, by no, the way. No, no, no. I've yes, still got a way to go. Well, you're doing okay. <laughs> Thank you, darling. So, so you talk about, uh, we talk about Oprah, we talk about uh, Michelle Obama, you can take you know, P. Diddy, any, anybody you like, yeah, mm. Michael Jordan, and they are the exceptions that prove the rule. But I suppose your point is, in the United States, at least you can be an exception. At least you can be an exception. Whereas the avenues here, they're not really, well, to say they're few and far between is yeah, over-exaggerating. over-exaggerating, because where are they? Yeah. Yeah. Because if they were few and far between, we could name the few and far between. But, I mean, it's still not easy because you talk about um, Barack Obama's odds of becoming the president. (laughs) And he did. And he did. Uh, But he was still quite a long shot, wasn't he? (laughs) Yeah. In the millions, wasn't it? In the millions. And then it's even way more here. Yeah. Like, way more. It's kind of near impossible at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Amuna, he could have come close. Could have, could have. Yeah. But until there's another one, you know. 
Yeah. And but, but also you do say in your book that Barack Obama, because he's from Hawaii, yes. uh, so so it's he, he's not black. No. He's a person of color. Yeah. Which gets us onto the to that whole topic. Yes. So Black Lives Matter. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Black Lives rules of engagement as far as potential allies are concerned, mm. uh, and white people. And you literally have the two polar opposites of yeah. black and white. But in mm. the middle, you have everybody else. Mm-hmm. So so where does everybody else sit in this conversation from from somebody? who knows yeah telling somebody who doesn't yeah oh what a beautiful question chris wow thank you um i think if i could go back to what you just said about barack obama and then that hopefully will feed into answering this question so with barack obama i think what's very interesting and actually it's quite similar with kamala harris it's quite they have very similar stories actually it's amazing um so with barack obama i think the fact that he wasn't raised on mainland america is absolutely key to his success because he wasn't raised around segregation. And in fact, Oprah even says this herself, even though she was raised in the South, she went to one of the first integrated schools in the South. So she grew up around white people. She was in the class with white people. Her teachers were white. So it just meant she didn't learn that sort of sense of difference in the same way as if you had grown up in the sort of segregated South in a segregated school. So with Barack Obama, he grew up in Hawaii, which didn't have the same sorts of issues that mainland America had around race. And so all his friends were from all over the world. And then he went to um, Indonesia So he then had that experience. And so it was almost as if, and then don't forget, he was also primarily raised by his white grandparents. So the people in Kansas, the sort of middle Americans that he would need to get on board to vote for him, that's who he was raised by. So he just knew them. You know what I mean? They were a part of him. And so it meant that when he then came to mainland America to go to university and so on, He didn't have the same baggage. And so when he then was sort of learning about the black experience, there was a a way of also being quite um, disconnected and being a bit of an observer of it as well, as opposed to experience it from your sort of formative years, in your formative years. And I think that is so important as to why he was able to be who he is. And again, if you look at Kamala Harris... Her mother was Indian. Her father was Jamaican. They were immigrants. So again, they were people that were educated in their own countries, came to America for the American dream, but they weren't raised with all of the issues of America. So even what they were able to sort of um, impart or input into their children was very different if they had experienced all that themselves. And I do think that we have to consider that. It definitely has an impact, no question. And so in terms of where we are, where race is concerned, you know, white people at one end, black people at the other, and then everyone in the middle. Come with the frog. Come with the frog as well. (laughs) With his green self. (laughs) I think if you take it back to sort of colonialism and um, sort of our imperialistic past, all of the other races were not slaves. They were indentured servants. Black people were slaves. And if you look at... um, Kant's definition of race, because, you know, the, the concept we have of race is really from what Immanuel Kant sort of put out there. It was, this was 
one end, the ideal, and then the least of the ideals was what was considered the most opposite was black. And I think that that has without question it's ingrained in all of us. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And so there's this higher, I call it the hierarchy of inclusion. So you have the hierarchy of inclusion in terms of gender and, you know, men, blah, 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 blah. And then you have the hierarchy of inclusion in terms of race. And then obviously some people intersect it all, right? And so because we have this hierarchy of inclusion, we are comfortable with certain groups over others. So if you look at Silicon Valley, it's no coincidence that if out of the people of color that are doing well in the valley, they tend to be of Asian origin. And then if you look in other professions, again, you have something similar. And I think it's all this stuff and it's all this stuff that we don't even really consider and unpick. We just we just go along with it because that's all we've ever known. And that's why I'm so grateful to you for allowing this conversation to happen because we're all living it out without even knowing we're doing it. But if we look and think about who are we comfortable with more than others, who do we have in... It plays out. It does play out. You know, and every second I'm learning something new. And, I, and I've read the book, you know, mm. and I've read other books too, but mm. I've never heard that mm. couch like that before. Yeah. Because we could talk about Rishi Sunak. Yes. Couldn't we? Because Rishi do. Sunak is a breath away. Yes. He's one, I was going to say, one one bad decision from Boris Johnson away from getting the main job, but he's done loads of those. <laughs> but haven't we all? But he's one, um, he's one Johnson fatal decision away from perhaps bagging the top job. Now, he is a man of colour, yeah. but he's not black. No. So talk, speak to that if yeah, you Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there is something there. So again, if we look at... Um, sort of um, educational attainment levels um, in the UK. South Asians of um, Hindu uh, uh, religious uh, origins, whatever, lineage, lineage, tend to do very well, tend to fare well. Where we have real issues, and I think it feeds back into all of the other societal issues when we look at the Asian community, is with Muslim men. And in particular, those from Bangladeshi backgrounds. Again, it feeds into the issues that you already have in that part of the world that then play out when people come here. And so when we look at BAME, you know, and I'm all and I'm not one of these people that's against catch all terms. I think they work in the sense that we know what we're talking about. But as long as you take a, a nuanced approach for all of the different groups. Well, they're easy to pollute, aren't they? That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so we have that. And then if you look at black, again, Africans, those that are sort of from African origins, tend to do better than those that are from the Caribbean. I think that's also historical. I think that is also something to do with slavery. Like you always have to look at what happened to this particular group of people and what could be the long-term ramifications of that and how is that legacy playing out today that's a fantastic answer yeah so so i look at rishi sunak there he is chancellor the exchequer he's a man of color yeah and you're saying yeah but chris why do you think he over another person of color from a different part of the world maybe maybe hasn't got that job may not be able to get the job for another 50 years there's a reason for it you muppet no no not the muppet but (laughs) that's kermit (laughs) but there's a reason there's a reason that's a story about lots of different other people. Uh, I'm only dealing with one person right now in front of me, <laughs> and that's you. Yeah. 
June. Yeah. So you, your first telly job was with MTV at the absolute zenith yes. of music television. When yes. MTV was what it was always wanted to be, not supposed to be. Yeah. Things are what they are. Yeah. But it was, it was, it was the perfect incarnation of itself. What mm. had gone before was a little bit too esoteric, uh, not quite eclectic enough. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you and your gang around the two thousands. So it was sort of like actually 1996, 97 onwards. Yes. You know, and then you you appear in Camden, the old TVM studios, yeah. MTV, bada bada bing. <laughs> yeah. How'd you get that job? Oh my goodness. So Chris, it was the funniest thing. I almost didn't get that job. And it's amazing how a moment can change your life, isn't it? It's unbelievable. So I had been working in the music business. So I was working for BMG which Sony later bought. Um, and um, I was working on Usher. You remember Usher Raymond, the singer? Yeah, of course. Yeah. How could you not? How could you not? Love Usher. So I did the promo for his first big UK album. So remember that You Make Me Wanna and all of that? I think I hosted a Brits with him on it. Of course you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so I did the promo for that album. Um, and so we had a showcase... Um, with him coming to the UK, performing. And it was the first big showcase I'd organised. So I had to get everything together. And so I didn't get home until really late the night before the audition. And I thought, okay, I'll wake up early and learn the scripts and then go and do the audition. And Trevor Nelson actually had recommended me to MTV to, to, to go for this job. Um, and so I thought, I can't let Trevor down. I've got to know what I'm doing. Anyway, I woke up late that morning and I almost didn't go because I was like, I can't go and mess it up. I can't go and mess it up. And luckily I had a friend staying with me and she said, you know what, just go, just go, get dressed, go. If we're late, whatever, we'll get there. So got to MTV. This is my random thinking. I signed the wrong name in the book because I thought I didn't want them to know it was me in case I messed up, even though they were going to film me. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I think it's called lack of sleep. It's called lack of sleep. <laughs> right? So anyway, so I get into the... Right, I'm like, huh? So I get into the green room and Chris... Pete Tong's there, Judge Jules, Rob Tessera, um, uh, Anne Savage, all these big house DJs, because it was a, for a dance floor chart show, all these big house DJs. And, I'm, and, and I'd all I'd worked with most of them at Kids FM, but they were my idols. So I thought, oh, I'm not getting this, whatever. So it meant that I relaxed. Anyway, so I went into the audition and um, I somehow managed to remember the two scripts. I didn't, I don't know how I did it, but I read it and I was like, okay, somehow I remembered this. And then I had to talk about myself. And I thought, well, that bit I can do. So um, I, so I did the audition, didn't think I had a chance. I wasn't even really thinking about it. And then a week later, I got a call from them to say that I'd got the job. Um, and they were like, can you film this weekend? And so we filmed our first dance floor chart show at Dingwall's in Camden, <laughs> and, and yeah, that's how it started. Fantastic story, by the way. I'm so glad I asked you the question. Yeah. Um, so you get the gig, um, it goes gangbusters, yeah. right? But then there's a PR campaign. There's a PR campaign. Right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So there's a PR campaign. Do you remember Sky Magazine? I yeah, well, you were on the cover of Sky Magazine a few times. Yeah. <laughs> Those copies didn't sell so well. I think they were the, <laughs> the biggest selling in history. <laughs> So Sky Magazine, which for any of you that uh, don't remember, um, in the sort of noughties was like the coolest magazine around. 
And um, basically what happened was MTV decided to do a campaign with all of the MTV girls, which is what we were called then. I mean, you couldn't get away with calling us that now, um, but we were MTV girls. Um, and so it was Kat Dealey, uh, Sarah Cox, uh, Edith Bowman, um, all of um, Donna Air, all of my uh, white female colleagues. And this was during the sort of Ladette period. Um, and um, I wasn't included in the shoot. And so what happened was um, the audience, because at the time I had one of the most highest rated shows on the on the network. So the audience started calling up to say, what's going on? Like, why isn't June in, in the shoot? Has she left? Because Sky Magazine was a big deal at the time. And so then what later transpired, Chris, was that it wasn't Sky Magazine that had said they didn't want me. Yeah. Yeah, the, the PR team at MTV had not put me forward for the shoot, for whatever reason. And it was a beauty shoot, just just putting that out there. And at the time, I was like 20, 21, um, and it was heartbreaking. Like, now I think I would have dealt with it differently, but then it was really hard. I mean, I cried and I cried and I cried. And the thing that made it sort of... Uh, bearable, I suppose, was the way the audience responded. And I'm one of those people, I've always been a glass half full type person, I thought. And I'm glad in a weird way, Chris, that that happened really early in my career because Kiss was like a utopia. Kiss was, you know, people from all different backgrounds and that was the whole point of Kiss. Whereas MTV was then me coming into the real world of what our industry really is like. I was kind of in a bit of a bubble at Kiss. And in a way, I'm so glad it happened early because it prepared me for what was to come. And so anyway, again, like I said, glass half full type person. So my agents and I, he was like, okay, well, we have two choices. We're either going to get really hurt and upset or we're going to use this as a way of teaching the teams that this is unfair. And so we went for the second option um, and we went in uh, and we renegotiated my contract um, uh, put it that way. I got a nice kitchen that year. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> you know, when life gives Whoa. you lemons, you make lucrative lemonade. And so we renegotiated my contract. Um, and then they had someone uh, assigned to me to do my own PR. And actually, it turned out to be a turning point in my career. Because then I had so much press focused on me. And that's how I ended up getting Channel 4. So without that, I don't know perhaps if I'd be doing what I'm doing. And you said, you know, this this gave you a, 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 an eye-opener, a wake-up call to what your industry, our industry, mm. is really like. Yes. I mean, did anything of significance similar happen oh, after that? Oh, so many, so many, so many times where, you know, I would be, we'd do a shoot and you would be told it was a cover and then the last minute dropped because they thought black girls didn't sell so many I can't remember to the point where I used to just get nervous whenever it was a magazine I'd be like don't just let's just say it's inside because I knew what was coming um so many times where producers would say we think she's amazing but not sure if a mainstream audience will like her on a sort of Saturday sun Saturday evening shiny floor type show so there are lots of shows as you move up your career well you know in our industry it's about sort of getting to that Saturday night you know Friday night big slot lots of shows 
that just weren't available to me. And I'm not complaining. Hey, I, I had a good run, so I'm not complaining. But I knew there was only so far I could go within our industry. Um, and so for me, I was like, well... I'm going to be really grateful because, like we said, you know, when you're from a council estate, this is amazing in comparison to where I'm from. So I'm really grateful that I've got what I have, but I know I can do more. And if I stay here, I will be frustrated because I know I can do more. Even if I'm not going to do telly, and I was fine not to do telly anymore. I was like, even if I'm not going to do telly, I know my abilities. I know I can do more. And that's part of the reason why I moved to America. And so I moved to America in late 2000s, sort of around 2009, 2010. Um, and I think it was one of the best decisions of my life in the sense that I went. Um, and in terms of you saying I'm a confident person, I wouldn't be had I not gone to America. America gave me a different kind of confidence in that there's something about people taking a chance on you where they believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And that's what I got there. And without that, there's no way. Fascinating. Mm. So so thank you for bridging that gap where your confidence comes from. Yeah. I always thought you were super confident anyway, but I get what you mean. Mm. You know, you know better than anybody else. Um and so you go to America, it gives you this confidence, maybe because of some of the things we've already talked about, yes. but it also then gave you this this sort of deep veined experience of what can go wrong for example with your brother um you know and being yeah. stopped by the police yeah. in his in his gorgeous big yes. big um car. cars yeah, yeah. yeah. so so, so it was a, a double a, yeah. a dualistic learning experience totally and that, and then it's different because you know we talk about stop and search in the UK and of course we have problems with that no i'm not in any way downplaying the, 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 those sorts of issues here but they are far more pronounced in America. And as we've seen recently, we know that they can result in very, very tragic circumstances. And so so for any black man in America, you know an encounter with the police at the sort of lesser end of the spectrum could mean you end up in a cell for the night for not doing anything. And at the worst end, you could end up dead. Like, it's a reality. And so they're taught very early. You know, when you meet a police officer, you use, sir, sorry, sir. You do everything that you're told. You don't in any way talk back. You make sure your hands are visible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, the the, the incident you're talking about, I was in America with a friend of mine, a, 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 a white lady. You know her, she's a mutual friend of ours. Um, and so we were in the car with my brother and um, we were in the back. So when the police stopped him, I don't think they saw us because it was a sort of uh, SUV. And so when they stopped him and the way they approached him, it was in such an aggressive way. And my brother was a, the calmest kindest, sweetest, most gentle soul. And so he was doing all the things, going through the routine, yes, sir, blah, 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 blah. And so then they saw us, but obviously we both had English accents and, and my friend is, you know, very powerful woman. So she's the kind of person when she says, when she opens her mouth, you know, you have to listen. And so we were the ones who were like, well, why has he been stopped? We want your badge, blah, 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 blah. And the officer became somebody else. He became the nicest, kindest. We were like, who is this person? And had we not been there, you know, I'm not saying it would, but who knows what this could have turned into. And this is the kind of fear that any 
black man in America, doesn't matter how successful you are, this is a, a fear and a burden that they carry. And, and again, that's is that a black thing over people of colour? Black and Hispanic. Right. Yeah, black and Hispanic. Definitely. Okay, okay. and that's, yeah. that's just entrenched. Yeah. When you saw the footage of George Floyd being mm. murdered, mm. Um, tell me the kind of <sighs> thoughts you were having. Tell me your initial reaction to that, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, tell me what you thought of subsequently and then how the the horror of, of that event settled with you mm. days after, weeks mm. after, even today. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't watched the video and I can't. I just, the idea of seeing somebody killed in eight, eight in just over eight minutes, I just, I just can't watch it. And I don't think I need to watch it. We all know what's happened. I've seen the pictures, I've seen the images and I've seen the video because what I wanted to watch was the pre-video rather than the actual um, killing itself. And the pre-video you see, again, to what I was saying, that routine, George Floyd went through the routine. He said, yes, sir. He went willingly. He did not in any way argue or answer back. He was not aggressive in any way, shape or form. And even just before he passed, he he cried out for his mother. I mean, and I think the reason that killing impacted everyone even though it impacted us all differently in terms of how we related to it to that story or that position in society but the reason why nobody nobody couldn't help but be moved by it was because it fed into something that we all know exists in our society and if you're a black person it's something that you encounter on some level. So whether it is the sort of extreme end, like George Floyd, or it's the other end of the kind of old tropes that are used about black people and how that impacts you in the workplace, you knew what that was and you knew how that could impact you and people that you love and people that you care about. And I think for me, the trauma, and again, it's based on just sort of my personality, the trauma for me was, wow, what is the quickest way to make this less likely? And I believe that one of the things that really keeps um, systemic racism alive and inequality going is the lack of ability that many black people um, in the West have to defend themselves because of the economic disparities between white and black people. And obviously we have economic disparities amongst the white population itself, of course, but black people disproportionately tend to be on the lower end of the economic ladder. And I think that it means that policeman knew he could do that to a George Floyd and get away with it in the way that if that had been a Wall Street banker in a suit, he would have just instinctively known he couldn't do that and get away with it. And so for me, that was the driver of how do we create a fairer society so that people 
have a better ability to defend themselves. You know, it's funny, and you said at the beginning of this uh, conversation that, you know, the George Floyd incident with lockdown, mm. with people having time to think, being yes, more thoughtful, yes, yes. Um, wondering what makes them happy, what doesn't make them happy, how yeah. they are. And how can they be better? How can yeah. they be better? Looking at the kind of people and the heritage of the people who were looking after yeah. their loved ones, yeah. maybe looking after them in about a minute, yeah. maybe trying to save their life. The checkout girl, the, yeah, the, 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 the dustbin man, the bus, bus driver, yeah. Basically, anybody that works really hard um, yes. in the morning that doesn't work in the media. Anyone that's not us. So you go to America, um, mm. you are decompressed, yep. you are revitalized, Correct. you become um, more resilient, mm. uh, you learn things that you couldn't learn here because of things that are happening there and happen there yep. to a more extreme um, level than anywhere else in the world. And then you come back. Yes. Right. And ironically, you now have a job. Yes. Which um, may enable, um, would have enabled, had it existed, your 2001, 2002 MTV auditioning self to stand a better chance. Yeah. How mad is that? How mad is that? How mad is that, Chris? And and I'd like to touch on... But first of all, let's say what the job is so people know. Yes, sorry. Um, I'm Director of Creative Diversity at the BBC. Right. Um, And I'd like to touch on, um, before I go into that why I came back. And I tell you why I came back is even though I've said all the things that I've said and everything we've discussed in this conversation, we are way ahead of the rest of the world on these issues. And I think in part it's because when immigrants came to the UK, they lived side by side with white people in white communities. So we're not as segregated as other countries are. You know, if you look at France, you know, their immigrant population tends to be in one place. And and then if you, talking about Paris anyway, and then if you look at America again, poor people live with poor people and so on and so on. Whereas with us, we are so integrated, even, even in terms of... Um, economically, because of our social housing system, it means you can have a council estate next to multi-million pound homes that's highly unlikely anywhere else. So we have that proximity. And so I think, and that's part of the reason why you have the sort of intermarrying and all the stuff that we have here that isn't as prevalent elsewhere. And so I believe that we are way ahead when it comes to the integration piece, even though we do have problems still. In comparison to other places, we are way ahead. Which means if we can get the opportunity piece right, we become the example for everyone. So I just, I'm so hopeful, even with all the divisions and all the stuff that we're talking about, still, if you look at the core of your average British person, there is a kind of live and let live attitude that we have. There's an inherent goodness there. And I think that we can actually lead on this issue. So that was why I wanted to come back, because I just think... On the stuff that really counts, we are way ahead of most places. And did you come back to a job offer or did you just come back? I came back to not this job offer. I came back to a different job offer. So I came back um, and I had a contract with ITV. So I was doing some stuff with them. Um, And then obviously the Remain campaign happened. So I was doing some stuff on that. Um, And then um, I sort of started doing more and more more telly stuff again. So I'd been away for, I think, five years. So I was gone long enough um, to be missed. 
but not long enough to be forgotten. And it was getting to that borderline. Whereas if I'd stayed too beautifully put, by the way. Yeah, right. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the big how-to here. Yeah, yeah. how to stay long, how to stay away long enough to be missed, but not too long to be forgotten. Forgotten, and oh it was borderline. God. What a life lesson that is. <laughs> if I was, hey, well, I'll take that. So, so I thought, okay, it's time to come back home. Um, and the funny thing also happened was so Keith Lemon. I mean, this isn't why I came, but it was hilarious. <laughs> So, Kiss, I'm walking in New York, Chris, living in New York. All these random, and I wasn't on social media then, so all these random British people kept coming up to me and saying, can I take a picture with you? I need to tell Keith Lemon I found you. I'm like, huh, what? Not knowing um, Keith Lemon had started a Where is June Sarpong campaign. <laughs> and so they actually flew me in for the show to show that I was alive and they had found me. <laughs> <laughs> Which was hilarious. Um, and so anyway, a year later, I moved back home. Um, and um, so, so when life gives you Keith Lemon. Yeah, <laughs> lemon, lemonade, Keith Lemonade. Sarpongade it was. Sarpongade, exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, and so, yeah, so came back um, and, yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear me. Uh, right, so, I th where do we go next? Uh, oh, I know what it was. Yeah. The Remain campaign. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Because, um, you know, it is a long-held take on Brexit. Mm. That Brexit may have overwhelmed the Remain campaign because Brexit fought an emotional campaign. Mm. And you can emote people into mm. a point of view that you cannot reason them into. And if you can emote them into it, mm. you can't reason them out of it. Mm. And so it's like, wow. a, and it's not dissimilar to what happened with George Floyd. Yeah. Because obviously, logically, it's not all right. It's never been all right. Been all right. But it was so emotional. Yeah. It was so shocking. It emoted us all into movement. Yeah. The, the one criticism I have of the Remain campaign is, is, you know, Cameron came on this show and he said, you know, my dad always said, you know, when they go low, we go high. But in order for him to fight fire with fire in that particular circumstance, you know, Brexit went low. It might have been an idea in order to remain to go as low, if not lower. Does it does it matter in the end? Well, no. See, I, I, I don't know if it's that. I think it was a lack of understanding for where people were and for what people were experiencing. So if you look at our history... The sort of bedrock of British society is really its working class. And all the things that we pride ourselves on, really, it's the working class that have lived it and, and actually sort of delivered that for us. Even the war, you know, they've been conscripted and they were the ones really on the front lines, you know. And so if you look at the role they've played in our society and the sort of fabric of Britain, it's been such a pivotal role and there was always a very clear place for where our working class communities were in terms of our economy. You know, we both grew up in working class communities and we were able to see the jobs that our parents did that gave them pride. And we were also able to see when those jobs started disappearing and what happened to communities when those jobs disappeared. And I think that actually successive governments across the board did not do enough 
to reinvest in those communities and say, okay, well, if globalization means manufacturing jobs, blah, 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 are being outsourced, what else can we do? And how do we upskill these communities that have such a sense of pride and honor and work is everything that drives those communities? So none of that was looked at, which meant that, you know, when you got the result that you got, people were labeling these communities. And I think it was done completely, it completely missed the point. So I was um, <laughs> at the dinner, the sort of campaign dinner the night before and on the night of the vote uh, at the results. And when Sunderland was called, it was clear that something perhaps wasn't going the way everyone had thought. So at that point, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to bed. So I went home and I went to bed and I thought, I'll wake up. So did Nigel Farage, because he thought he'd lost. <laughs> he thought he'd lost. It was, mad. It was the maddest <laughs> night ever. I remember I was in Glastonbury. Well, you were at Glastonbury. He was unbelievable. <laughs> By the way, the, the maddest place in the world to be that morning was in Glastonbury. <laughs> Glastonbury. <laughs> Free thinkers. It's all okay. It's in the open air. Rock and roll lives. Come on. The history of this place. Sorry, anyway, you're at the dinner. You're yeah, at the so dinner. the dinner. Sunderland gets called, so I'm like, okay, I'm going home to bed. And so when I woke up in the morning and saw the results... I can't remember who, but someone sent me this video and they're like, you need to watch this. And there was a film that Newsnight had done. So they had been following a, a community somewhere in the north. And there was a woman who, what she did was she literally got her whole community together, council estate, somewhere in the north. And she became a full-on activist for Brexit. And she signed up all her friends, got them all registered to vote. And, you know, really, really passionate because of all of the cuts that had happened to her area and the sort of slow decline. And she thought, I have to do something. Anyway, so in the morning, the Newsnight team were the ones that delivered the news to her that Brexit and leave had been successful. And she burst into tears and she said, wow, they listened. I didn't think they would ever listen. And I was like, oh, okay. That was all I needed. I was like, I get this. I get this in a way that I didn't get it before. I get this. And that's what we now all need to figure out how to solve. You know, regardless of where you are on the, on the debate, is almost relevant now. It's now... The fact that we have to ensure that everybody has a shot. And it means there's lots of reconfiguring and redesigning that needs to happen. And also, I really do believe business has a key role to play in this, in the sense that, yes, a lot of companies are making redundancies now, but you're not always going to be making redundancies. And most of the time, businesses are based in communities where there's real deprivation. Even if you're in a wealthy community, not far, there'll be real deprivation. And we're doing nothing to it positively impact the communities that we're based in. And so I think we all have to start thinking very differently now. Yeah, and also, um, you know, a lot of people do listen, but they only listen for confirmation of their opinions, yeah. i.e. the echo chamber, yes. and they are they are very uncomfortable with disagreement. Yeah. You know? And there's these very forward-thinking people um, that, that engage a lot with social media who purposely listen to people who disagree with them yeah. because they think it's healthy and within that lies growth. Yeah. Hello. You know, I know. Yeah. I know it's so obvious, but it's obvious, but it's not happening. Yeah. Um, right now, talking of listening, mm. let's get back on point. Yeah. So, um, 
I was hearing two very wise people uh, talk about uh, this subject uh, that we're talking about this morning, and I was confused. This is way before you wrote your book. Mm. And um, this chap said, he said, white people, you want to know what to do? Here's what you need to do. Mm. I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. Give me this. I just need this <laughs> now. I remember exactly where I was. Yeah. I was on my Brompton bike, yeah. cycling to work, and I was just by Albert Bridge when he said that. I thought, right, this is it. Oh, great. It's this what I need. It. This yeah. is it. Yeah. And he pretty much delivered. So he said, he calls it the four L's. Mm. Listen, lament, mm-hmm. learn, mm. and labor. Mm. Nice. Pretty much there? Yeah, that's okay. it. Well, onto your book. That's it. Because this is what you talk about. So you, you've, you've divided your book into ten, ten, not chapters, but ten actions. Correct. Do we go through them one by one? We can mm. go into it in more detail. It's entirely up to you. Well, we could. Should we touch on them? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so let's go, let's go to action number one. Achieve awareness. Yes. And I think it's everything we've been doing right here, which is to really um, acknowledge that systemic racism exists um, and better educate yourself in terms of how it plays out. And, you know, often you don't want it to be you're having to ask your one black friend, uh, what is it that you go through? And then the onus is all on them. But I do think it is a good idea to, to just ask how this stuff plays out because it may be happening in ways that you don't even realize okay so a bit of detective work correct and also dive into it don't be frightened of don't it. don't be frightened of it that's the thing isn't yeah. it um action to make a small step with a big footprint mm. um and that's a simple one i think that is what can you do and often we sometimes think, oh, this is so big, it's bigger than me, it's societal, what can I do? But we all as individuals can make a difference. So even if you are a stay-at-home mum and your kids perhaps don't even go to the local state school, could you volunteer at that local state school? Could you sponsor a local family and change the trajectory of that family's life? Little things make a big difference. Is that the action, is that the chapter in which you tell the story of the kid who knocks on all the doors yeah! in Kensington? <laughs> yeah. What a story. What that is. a story. Can you just give us a 30 second version of that yes. story? So, this young kid uh, called Reggie Nelson, um, decide, young black boy, um, decided, single mom, decided he wanted to figure out how to be successful. And so he Googled most expensive area in London. Kensington came up, got on the tube, started knocking on doors in Kensington. Obviously, most people shut the door on him. I mean, I would have even called the police. So, so, so <laughs> hey, I, even I wouldn't have opened the door on him. But anyway, this uh, lovely woman invited him in yeah. uh, for a cup of tea. Her husband came home, who happened to be a sort of very successful city trader, um, and they took him under their wing and they have this amazing relationship now and he now has this great career uh, and is helping loads of other young kids from similar backgrounds to him. It's amazing. Right. That, is an, that is an amazing story. <laughs> How did you come across that story? I came across that story because I was on a panel discussion with the pair of them and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Could it be true? Yeah. Right, action three, build sustainable inclusivity. Yes. Um, I think really we have to relook at how we um, build our businesses and how we sort of configure our teams. I think really what we can do here is make sure that our footprint also is inclusive. So everything that we do, if you're in a position to hire, if you're in a position to put a team together, are you looking at what impact that can have where race relations are concerned as well? Because I would say the one issue that no business has gotten right is race. 
I think there are some businesses doing well on gender, some even on disability, some even on class, certainly not on race. Yeah, and you talk about in your book that, you know, if only, and it should never be if only, but if only from an economical point of view, yeah. it might be in your interest. It's, and you give, it an, you, give, you give examples. Yeah, yeah, it's totally in your interest. All of the data shows that actually diverse teams are better for everyone. And if we look at the BAME pound in the UK, Chris, the BAME pound over a 10-year period has gone from £32 billion a year to £300 billion a year. So even just for your bottom line, do it. Okay, and uh, the Nike story, six billion on the bottom line yeah. overnight. Overnight because of Colin Kaepernick. So when Nike stood by Colin Kaepernick, six billion on their share price overnight. Yeah, and some people burnt the Nike trainers. Yeah, but they had to buy the Nike trainers to burn them. Yeah, and do you know what they did on two weeks later? <laughs> what? Oh, I've got to get another pair of Nikes. <laughs> yeah. People will forget about that exactly. that little video I posted. Exactly. <laughs> the new Air Jordans yeah, are out. Really missing my Air Jordans two hundred and seventeen. <laughs> Right, Action 4, Chapter 4, do the white slash right thing. Yeah, and again, I think so often, you know, we sort of put bad tags out there, stale and pale and all of that. Let's move away from that. I think there's so much positive impact you can have when you come from the most privileged group in society. Action 5, educate yourself about the past. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand our history. Our history in terms of uh, colonialism and obviously slavery, but also history pre that, because often, particularly where black people are concerned, we're defined by that era when actually there was so much greatness before that. And I think you need a combination of both. You're brilliant at summing up these chapters. Oh, thank you, darling. <laughs> um, and also, it's interesting again. Thank the past you. is so interesting, isn't it? Is, it? Isn't it? You know, because you... it's still being played no, out today. I, I know, but it's, but it's like you know, these aren't chores. Yeah, they might sound like chores. Yeah, but they're adventures. They're adventures, yeah. In your book, via your book, mm. I did I make this up, right? Because I read it last night. Mm. I was tired. Yes, um, I loved it, but Thank I have to get you. up at a stupid time. I know you do. Right? I read it. I loved it. Mm. Did I really read that Eve? Is one hundred and fifty thousand years old, and Adam's ninety thousand years. Yes, old. yes. So I didn't. So I didn't dream you that. You didn't dream that. It's true. Yeah, mitochondrial Eve is one hundred fifty thousand years old, and Adam is ninety thousand. So what went on for the sixty thousand years? Know. In I don't know. We're gonna have to ask Spencer Wells. Fascinating. <laughs> like, who who was impregnating Eve during that time? I know. I don't know. <laughs> Well, maybe that's how we morphed into, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the other one was um, the, the Kant quote. Well, it wasn't the Kant quote, but I think it was a resultant of the things yes, that he yes. said. Mm -hmm. That race isn't the father of racism, it's the child of racism. Yes, there's Tanahasi Coates. Totally. Yep. Yep. Kant's got a few things to answer for, hasn't he? He has. Because people only focus on the good. Because let's, let's put him in perspective yeah. and the full context. I mean, there's a lot of great things he did. Yeah. But on this stuff, yeah, he has a lot to answer for. And he just happened to fall into the more favourable of the two polar opposites that Correct. he's describing. exactly. Strange that. Yeah. Uh, action number six, create a level playing field for women of colour. Yes, of course. I think we have to very much accept that we know that gender uh, inequality exists. So therefore, it's even more pronounced when you add race to that. Okay, now there you put of colour. Is is all is all, all these actions are they to, to do with lessons for white people with regards to of colour or yes. black? So it's of colour now. Of colour, because I think it all impacts. But we know that these things impact black people the worst. Right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, action seven: uh, Make a bigger pie. Yes. This is a new way of looking at things. You know, the old model is 
in order for me to win, you have to lose. And I think actually there's something else. We've never experienced the fullness of human potential and what we can create when we do. Let's try that. Because I can assure you it's going to be better than what we got. Action 8, be an ally, inspire more allies. Now, the term ally, Mm. you know, we talked about this before. There has been some pushback from the black community with the term ally. But then again, if we go back to... um, to one of the other actions, action for do the white, do the right thing. In a way, um, you know, don't don't put so much uh, emphasis, gravity, yeah. emphasis, importance, value on the term itself. No, it's the action. Right. And I think actually these things, I believe you do need to have a term for it. You do need people to know what it is so that they can do it. So I'm happy with allies. I think allies is a positive thing. Okay. So what's the first step somebody can take to being an ally? I think the first thing is listen, as you said. So back to one again. Yeah, back to okay, one. I'm just trying to figure this out. Yeah, the... I think listen and then decide what it is that you can do. Don't think, oh, I'm, oh there's nothing I can do. Even if your thing is small, it's still going to make a difference. All right. Action nine, redefine what it means to win. Yeah, there's a new model. There's a win-win model. Let's aim for that. Okay, action 10, act now. Yeah, don't wait. Okay, now. Time is now. You have said to me, recently that there were 12 actions yes with the two little lost souls <laughs> well my my publisher said 12 was too many because i wanted to have one for each month because i thought you could do one every month that's right? a good idea yeah but, well, let, let's but, give <laughs> well let's give oxygen to the two little lost souls yeah the two little lost souls the 11 was if i'm right was around your social circle i think this one is so important and i touch on it in diversify uh, a bit but i think the minute this becomes personal you're even more invested. And so who you bring into your life is so key. So just having a diverse friendship group just means you're going to be much more invested in this stuff. Um, And then the 12th one, if I'm correct, was around which we actually moved to the final bit of the book was about be the change. So it's about your legacy. So as I've said, if you figured out what it is that you can do long term, Decide what legacy you want to have on this issue. And then everything you're doing is towards that legacy. So by the time you leave this planet, you can say on this issue, this is the difference that I make. So today's present is our future past. Yeah. So be on the right side of that. Yeah. And what about accountability? Personal accountability. I always think it's helpful to, to make a deal with yourself. Yeah. Saying, what, have I, what have I done what, what will I do in October yes. to further my education, my personal education around this particular subject? And then what will I do with that knowledge yes. um, to the betterment of everyone? Correct. And, and always, I love that. What, always, you know, the headline is, you know, there is nothing to lose. There's nothing. You have nothing to lose. And everything to gain. Yeah. And everything to gain. And I think to your point, Chris, and really it's also about bringing one of your friends or your family member with you. So, i.e., if you're going to be accountable, who's the person that's holding you to account? And actually, maybe you do it with somebody else and the pair of you are actually checking in to see where and how progress is being made. Yeah, it's an account buddy. Yeah, account buddy. Accountability buddy. Yeah, in the way you would do it for working out or whatever change you're trying to make in your life. So, yeah. So, what what do you want to achieve in the next year to to do with equality? I think in the next year, definitely in terms of uh, the the stuff that I'm doing with the BBC um, really is about helping um, producers uh, from diverse backgrounds, companies that normally would not have an entry route into the BBC get in to be able to make uh, programmes for us and not make the kind of obvious programmes, make programmes for everyone. 
and make programs that are at scale. I think we just kind of need to take some of the sort of limiting uh, ideas that we have around uh, diverse talent. So in terms of my day job, definitely uh, that is what I want to do. Um, and then in terms of personally and the stuff that I'm doing here, it's really just keep having these conversations. I mean, I'm so lucky to be able to witness massive breakthroughs. You know, people who are thinking about this stuff in completely different ways and hopefully that will help change the way they behave in society and how they interact with others that are different. So that's good for me. <laughs> because you've now got a big cheese job at the BBC, mm. right? Because it is a big cheese job at yeah, the BBC. Yeah. Um, uh, you can call Oprah up now and you can meet her. I should. You can get I? her over. Yeah, I you should. Know, she'd love to come and do yeah. a show with the BBC. The BBC, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a great calling card. It is. Isn't it's it? wonderful. You've got, to, mate, yes. you've got to give the Harpo offices a I think. Call. Harpo, I'm on the phone. <laughs> um, so, June, I've got to go back to your mum's wisdom mm. or advice yes, or advice yes. slash wisdom. Yes. Okay. Uh, as, a, as a black woman, June, my da darling daughter, <laughs> you're going to have to work twice as hard for half as much. How's that going? It's going okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, I can't complain. It's going all right, you know. At least I knew, right? So I knew what I was going to need to do. So, hey, I'm happy with with twice as hard, half as much. Has it felt like twice as hard and has it felt like half as much? Um, hmm. Well, it depends on who you're comparing yourself to, doesn't mm. it? If I'm comparing myself to you, it's not even a tenth as much. <laughs> But, you know, if I'm comparing myself to, you know, some of the people I grew up around, then certainly not. Do you know what I mean? So, and I, yeah, I, I, that that doesn't worry me. I'm, I cannot complain, Chris. I have been lucky and I'm not in any way um, delusional when it comes to that. But at the same time, I'm also, uh, I also acknowledge and accept that certain things weren't as straightforward which meant that i had to create a different path so hey it's all good <laughs> but also you say i can't complain you're not a complainer no you, you would never complain no. anyway no no people either complain or they don't yeah it's very you know true I mean? actually yeah yeah i'm not a complainer i'm not a complainer no good okay. yeah non-complainers stick together <laughs> exactly <laughs> June, great to talk to you. Oh, Chris, thank you so much, sweetheart. You're this awesome. has been amazing. You're so awesome. You're the best. What do you think? Where do you think you're going to be in five years? I have no idea. Because you won't do the job at the BBC forever, will you? No, I doubt. Two, two three years? Maybe, yeah. Loads of energy. Loads of energy. All the beans. All the beans. Hand over the mantle to somebody yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. What do you want to do? Do you want to get back on the telly? No, I definitely don't. Interesting. This is amazing. Yeah. And you know what? It's so weird because that was what I had always wanted my whole life. And I genuinely don't. I'm much more interested in who's the next generation. I've done it. You know, there's, there's more exciting talent. Let them go for it. So, yeah. Well, I think you're amazing. Oh, I you're adore gonna, you. You're going to stay in the UK? Or yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, no, this is home. Totally. And also... How lucky that we get to see some of the changes that are happening in society. Yeah. Particularly, you know, when I think of how different things are for me than they were for my mum and how different that they will be for my kids and my nieces and nephews. I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope it happens. Yes. Fingers crossed. All right, Jin Sapong. You're awesome. Thank you, Chris. Oh, thank you, June. June Sarpong there. So much food for thought, so much to chew upon and act upon, my friends. Do the right thing. You know it makes sense and you know it's our shared responsibility. 
This has been How to Wow. And today's show has been brought to you by Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash how to wow now. And if you do input the how to wow bit of that URL, you'll get a free year supply of vitamin D and five travel free sachets today. That's their special offer to you via us. Athleticgreens.com slash how to wow. Have a great one. See you next time. Ta-da.